and welcome back to What in the World, a podcast for you, the busy professional, uh, wanting to know what on earth is going on in the ever-changing transitioning industry sectors of minerals, energy and supply chains. Each episode, we choose a topic or recent announcement within the broader resource industry and we unpack it, look at it from all sides and discuss how the issues will affect your business. We look for opportunities, challenges, and reality as we ask the question, what on earth is happening? We'll seek clarity in the chaos of change. Today, I thought we could discuss the big issue of the electrification of Australia. It's something that we've been talking a lot about in uh, throughout the community. I think we need to discuss what it means for our lifestyle in the future as we move into the post-carbon world and especially what it means for Australian businesses and business owners. Hello, my name is James Scotland, and to discuss this, I'm pleased to be joined again today by our regular commentators, the Senior Policy Advisor for the Australian Industry Group, Mr. Tennant Reid. Hello, Tennant. G'day. How are you? I'm good today. Uh, and Paul Hodson, a business and industry commentator with a special interest in change, improvement and innovation. Hey, Paul. Hi, James. Good to, good to see you. Today's episode is brought to you thanks to the support of the Australian Industry Group. AI Group is a peak national employer organisation representing businesses in the traditional, innovative and emerging industry sectors. AI Group has been acting on behalf of businesses across Australia for nearly 150 years. AI Group now has a dedicated section for businesses interested in the minerals, mining and energy sectors and it's my pleasure to be the general manager of that offering. For more details, head over to aigroup.com.au. Gentlemen, I'm keen to talk about the electrification of Australia and what's going on as the world moves from oil and gas and carbon to this electrified world. But before we do that, there's always a lot happening in our own world. And Paul, I hear you have changed roles after a long stint with NERA, National Energy Resources Australia. You're doing something different. What's going on, my friend? Oh, thanks, James. Yes, uh, after three and a half years at uh, NERA, I moved on to, after supporting energy technology companies, I've actually uh, joined one. Um, so I'm a Director of Business Development with Alexis Energy, trading as Planet Arc Power, which is a, a two-way grid technology company. Um, that's going global. So uh, not too far into it, but really enjoying it. Um, seeing the, uh, the energy technology sector and the energy transition from uh, a lot closer, perhaps. Well, you know, congratulations on transitioning your, uh, your career as, uh, <laughs> as you always have, but also um, your recent insights, you know, as you've joined the company will be helpful today as we talk about electrification and its implications. You know, it seems to me that it's a confusing and fascinating to think about what Australia is going to look like in the years ahead. And we at AI Group get asked a lot of questions about what it's going to look like. Um, and to me, there seems to be an assumption that there is a problem because the future is not clear, uh, that there are still many questions and challenges. And this means that somehow or other, the transition is failing. Uh, so let's see if we can unpack that and talk about it. But before we do, let me put some context. Of course, to me, here's the thing. Back when Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla were 
trying to figure out how to make electricity, how to, how to turn it into a commercial uh, entity. They were uh, disputing whether or not it should be AC or DC. They were disputing if it was going to be alternating current, should it be 60 cycles or more or less. Uh, and it eventually worked out, but it worked out due to a number of factors, including who was able to get financial support, who was able to organise government policy, and what type of acceptance happened in the community. And in fact, any historians, any people interested in the history of this, will know that there was quite a bit of PR involved in trying to change people's minds as the technology evolved. But it wasn't just electricity that was unclear as industry transitioned. Back in the internal combustion motor vehicle section, there was a lack of clarity in which was the best engine. Should we go petrol or diesel or two-stroke? And 100 years later, there is still a bit of confusion, although it seems like uh, to a large degree, we've gone diesel for large commercial vehicles and petrol for, you know, the, the normal, you know, um, residential type vehicle. And of course, there was difference in, in engine types, V8, 6, straight 6, V12s, east-west, rotary. Everything, there was a lot of different technologies and we had to figure out what the way forward was. It didn't matter that it was unclear. We just kept moving forward. And, of course, in the 80s, the great battle of technology emerged in our homes, beta versus VHS, strangely. A bit like the vehicles, business went for beta, homes went for VHS. And what about Apple and Microsoft? Eventually, Microsoft became the way of uh, many businesses, whilst Apple was used by creative businesses. And, of course, let's not get into the Apple versus Android discussion. So, of course, to me, to, to me, of course, the future is going to be unclear as technology emerges, systems and processes develop, financial and government support chooses which way it's going to go, and community acceptance and market power makes its decision. Will we have things like big national power grids or individual home and business generators? Will coal and gas still have a role to play via CCS? Um, Will hydrogen compete with electricity or will it be used to generate electricity? And how will we store electricity created by solar? All of these questions are what we're being asked. So I'm interested in your thoughts, uh, gentlemen. Let's start with the first question, the simple question really, why? What's the case for electrification in our built environment? Well, I think, uh, James, you know, electrification is, um, uh, I think if we go, go back, and, and I think you've done a great introduction there, if we look at electrification, I mean, electricity is um, uh, something that's been centralised in the past and, uh, you know, it, there's been a, a, almost a, a, a distinct difference between stationary power, which was, was electricity, and, uh, and, and mobile power, which was often an oil-based, um, as you said, petrol, diesel, and the like, uh, particularly in, in electricity grids. Um, Off-grid, obviously, diesel's been um, quite, uh, quite powerfully used. One, one of the things that's been um, happening a lot is that the cost of um, clean electricity, so uh, from renewables, particularly wind and solar, um, and now even with the vast reductions in batteries, um, has actually made, um, according to the CSIRO, um, their gen, gen cost report 
um, that it's the cheapest form of, uh, of energy generation. So we've seen, I think, a lot more electrification and we're seeing what's happening in the, in the, the, the electric vehicle market as well as really uh, moving, uh, moving into, I guess, the lowest form of, uh, of energy um, as a, as a, which delivers us also a cleaner, a cleaner form of energy as we move towards a more low carbon or, or net zero economy. It, it, it raises questions though, doesn't it? You know, back to your point. I saw a graph a little while ago at a conference where they said if we move mobile energy, you know, the, the, the carbon-based energies to electrification um, and we sort of put everything over to electricity, there's going to be this exponential demand for electricity. Do you, do you think that's right, uh, Tenon? Is that going to happen? So it depends really on whether we're talking about overall energy demand, like annual megawatt hours consumed versus peak demand, how many megawatts of demand there is at any moment in time. If you replaced every passenger vehicle, every car in Australia with an electric vehicle equivalent to say a, tel a Tesla Model 3, you would increase annual electricity demand by about 15% which is a substantial chunk of demand, but it's also, you know, pretty manageable. If we had a, a run-up, and we certainly would have a bit of warning that uh, the, the vehicle fleet was getting towards 100% electric vehicle, that would take some time to accomplish. Uh, we could definitely build the infrastructure needed to meet that additional annual energy demand. But if all of those vehicles plugged in to charge at 5.30pm on a weeknight, the electricity system would be overwhelmed immediately or we would need to build an, an enormous amount of network infrastructure and storage and generation to meet that huge instantaneous demand. On but would it be networks? But well, be so networks? if we spread that demand out through smart charging, through uh, the, the, the timing uh, and the location of charging to take the most advantage of the existing network capacity, we actually might not need to build much additional capacity at all. So it all comes down to the smarts with which electrification happens. It could be completely unworkable or so easy it's barely noticeable, depending on how the amount of uh, coordination we have in making that transition. I think one of the big questions that comes across my desk anyway is that in the future, is my business going to have its own power grid? Am I going to have not be connected to the network or will I be making money by putting money into the network? There's this whole question of business people about what does this mean for my business? And related to that, this might bring you in, Paul, is this idea of, well, can I store electricity if I you know, have solar panels? Can I store it some way? What's the future of power storage? Is electricity just going to be this grid idea or pull it out of the grid whenever I need it or are we going to... Uh, have microgrids and power storage. And I think, James, the answer is probably all of the above um, yeah. in, a, in, a, in a strange way. I think there is opportunities as uh, particularly, I mean, in Australia, we've got uh, the highest penetration of rooftop solar in the world and particularly in the residential space. I think it's about one in every four rooftops 
um, in the residential space has has PV. Um, We've got a fair bit of solar, by the way. Sorry, <laughs> got, yeah, absolutely. We've got a fair bit of sun. Yes, we do, we do, and we and we're using that. Um, but I think it's interesting if you look at there's two aspects to the grid. One's the transmission network, which is the high voltage side, and and in the past, I mean, that's where the generation has happened. Uh, that was the large coal-fired power stations, trans, you know, on the transmission networks, uh, delivering then down into, you know, through substations, through transformers, into lower voltage networks that were distributed to consumers. Um, it was a very much a one-way system. Um, what we're seeing with the, the, I don't want to use the word explosion, but in the rapid rise of rooftop systems is that we've got a lot of generation happening on the distribution networks. Um and it's, you know, it, it creates instability. Um, it's one of the things that the company that I work for um, look at doing is actually how do you kind of create this microgrids, but connected microgrids through distribution networks. One of the challenges, I think, of taking distribution networks, um, uh, one of the challenges, I think, for distribution networks is that as, as solar and batteries become, uh, become uh, really uh, cheaper, and much more affordable is that people might take themselves off the grid. And what that will do is actually create um, perhaps as, uh, just as expensive a grid, but it'll be uh, supported by fewer and fewer people who are perhaps least able to afford paying for that grid. Um, so I think the solution is microgrids that are connected still within the network. Um, obvious benefits both ways on that, from the microgrid providing stability um, and soaking up, for example, excess power um, at times and, and discharging that power into the grid. Um, but also I think um, it, it, it adds, adds to the health of the, the overall system. Yeah, this brings in technology, doesn't it? How the technology is going to work and the numbers. It does make me think though, Tenet, when the grid was initially created, it was uh, created because we needed uh, um, all in. <laughs> if we're going to build an electrical grid for the city of New York, which was the first one, we needed everyone in New York to pay for it. So it was, you pay for the grid regardless of, uh, uh, just because you were in the town. What's the policy setting? Where's the, the, the federal and state governments heading towards? Microgrids, um, uh, national grids, uh, the hybrid like Paul mentioned? So I would say that at the moment, there's a lot of relevant activity from all levels of government, but there's no one big plan that's guiding all of that activity. Uh, we have um, efforts from the federal government that uh, are supportive of electrification of the transport system through uh, funding and, and providing grants to uh, charging networks uh, for electric vehicles. Uh, there's assistance to industry via uh, arena studies and grants uh, on the uh, scope that's available for electrification uh, and, and the use of uh, renewable electricity. Uh, but they're also uh, taking steps to support uh, existing ways of doing transport. They're uh, providing financial backing to continue oil refining uh, in Australia. They're uh, providing some financial backing to uh, promote the production and consumption 
of natural gas for industrial heat uh, and other purposes. Uh, so there's the, they're having a, a, a bet in every direction is uh, one interpretation there, or uh, a lot of activity without a plan is, is another interpretation. At the state level, uh, and looking at industry activity and looking at the electricity market uh, governing bodies, uh, there is a lot of uh, belief in the value of both distributed resources and centralised resources. Uh, there is also, I think, an increasing sense that the, um, the costs of sustaining an electricity network that actually nearly everybody still needs uh, for... Uh, um, they, it's not practical for most people to disconnect from the grid completely. And households that have a, uh, a large amount of their own solar and some storage, uh, they reduce substantially the megawatt hours that they draw from the grid, but the peak megawatts of demand that they might have from the grid a few times a year if they're really, really... Uh, thoroughly set up with their own resources. They, they still, when it's been dim for a while and they've had a, a bunch of um, uh, home heating to do and uh, vehicle charging to do, you know, they are still going to need to draw on the grid. If you're uh, only charging people for their use of the grid based on the megawatt hours that they consume, that can become quite inequitable with, uh, as Paul was saying, those people who are left on the network uh, using uh, the, the most energy but not necessarily unusual in their peak demand, they will be paying for a higher share of those costs and people who can afford to put in solar and batteries although they're still actually dependent on the grid, will be paying less of it. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of potential for people to be quite unhappy with one another in trying to alter the rules of how uh, people are charged for use of the grid. Uh, there's a lot of disquiet at the moment from some solar households about moves to enable the possibility of charging for exports of solar power to the grid. Uh, and uh, we're, we're going to have to get through all of that mutual unhappiness because it doesn't look even vaguely efficient to have a future where everyone is an autarkic island with uh, enough solar and storage to meet not just their average needs, but meet their needs after you know a couple of weeks in the in the middle of winter when things have been dim and they've had a lot of demand, that's a lot of batteries and a lot of solar. Nobody wants to pay for as much of that as would be needed rather than to be able to depend on their neighbours and on the wider state region that they're a part of and the whole national electricity market. So it's... it's uh, I don't think that authorities and I don't think that uh, governments and I certainly don't think that industry are losing sight of the benefits that come from being interconnected with each other, but the, the small scale can provide that benefit as much as the large scale can. Uh, what, what comes to mind is the uniqueness of Australia. I have a friend, uh, as I've shared before, in Norway where they spend six months of the, the year with the sun 
but then six months without any sun. And, and, and so solar takes on a different, a, a different concept over there. Um, Paul and I both live in Queensland where it's uh, sunny one day and then sunny again the next. <laughs> Perfect one day, beautiful the, <laughs> the next. Uh, uh, sorry, tenant from Melbourne. But also, I'm shaking so, my fist at you in a very visual <laughs> medium. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's not very visual. But, but, but also, although we have a lot of sun, we're, we're, we're really a small number of people spread throughout a very big land. And there is a lot of people, particularly in Queensland, that are, that are world diverse. If you're going to f have electric vehicles, by the way, you know, they say in New Zealand you can put uh, recharges every 20 kilometres or whatever you need. Whereas in this, we're in a Queensland, perhaps that's impossible. How do those factors um, impact our policies and our thoughts and our business opportunities? Paul, Lieutenant, whoever? I would just um, say very quickly that people are diverse. Businesses are diverse. Their needs are quite distinct. And you won't get one size fits all. Uh, the average kilometres driven per day for a registered vehicle in Australia is about um, 30 kilometres. It's not much, but that's encompassing a huge spread between people who don't drive at all on an average day and people who go several hundred kilometres. Uh, and so the, the, the vehicles types, the charging networks, the, the patterns of behaviour uh, that are suitable are going to be quite different. And uh, we, we need to enable those who've got um, needs that can be met through electricity uh, and electric vehicles, electrification, to, to take those opportunities uh, without people who, who aren't in a... Uh, a location or a, a business or a work style that is suitable for that, feeling that they are losing out. Unique. Paul. Yeah, yeah look, I was going to say, I mean, one of the things you, you did, you know, it's a great, great point to touch on. We, we are unique in some of those ways. I mean, we do have a, a national electricity market, uh, a grid uh, very long, um, but also very skinny. Um, and there's a lot of, I think it's probably about as many as two, 2 million households or something that are off grid in Australia anyway. And they lend themselves now to solar um, and batteries um, and, and going and, and removing perhaps diesel generation and, and other ways of, of producing uh, remote remote power. Um, and I think uh, the, the, the other and even at the edges of that grid, that very skinny grid that we have, uh, there may be small rural towns and the like that, that make much more sense perhaps for them. Um, they're on uh, a very, uh, you know, on single lines, for example, from the grid uh, to actually go and develop their own microgrid and go off grid may, may make a lot of sense as well um, for the overall grid and for the operations of the grid because some of those are some of the more expensive parts uh, to maintain as well, um, and perhaps with not great reliability. The other point I'd make as well is that we've always seen electricity as a very much a domestic uh, usage. But uh, remember that we're you know in the hyd in the green hydrogen discussion, and even in the high voltage DC cable discussion of people like Sun Cable, we're actually looking at exporting electricity. So not only do we have an increased demand for electricity in Australia from things like EV. Uh, from electric vehicles, but we're also looking at elect electrifying and exporting electricity either through you know green ammonia, green hydrogen, or through or through uh, you know DC cables. 
Yeah, Tenant mentioned that. Do you want to talk a bit more about it, Paul or Tenant? What, what do you mean you're going to export electricity? So, well, I mean... Well, we can make the, a lot of it. Yeah, absolutely. So we've, we've got huge amounts, particularly of solar intensity, and there's some great work that's been done by Geoscience Australia, actually, looking at things like green hydrogen uh, potential, and there's a lot of mapping of Australia around that energy potential. So we've seen a couple of the advanced ones have been the Sun Cable Project in Northern Territory, looking at... Uh, converting an old uh, a former cattle station to a very large uh, facility and then and then having a, a high voltage uh, DC cable um, up to Singapore um, from the Northern Territory um, sending that energy up um, up to Singapore um, green hydrogen obviously will require a huge amount of renewable energy input and I know uh, from presentations I've seen from Japan for example they've talked about 1,600 gigawatts of, of PV uh, to generate their imports of green hydrogen um, by 2050. Uh, these are huge figures of electricity uh, to be generated, to be able to do the electrolysis um, and to be able to then export that in, in whatever form that may be exported. Um, these are only some of the smaller projects that may actually also offset some of our exports of traditional energy. I would add, though, that to the point uh, that uh, you opened with, James, about you know many options, many choices in previous technological revolutions and some uncertainty about how things are going to play out, there is the possibility that uh, there is not a huge amount of demand for imported hydrogen or, or even imported electricity in major uh, Asian economies, that there is the possibility that the uh, growth in capability and the, the fall in costs that we're seeing with renewable uh, energy generation actually increases the domestic opportunities for even for countries like Japan that don't have a huge amount of land area suitable for uh, renewable electricity generation, offshore wind is becoming a very big deal in Europe. Uh, and if that uh, plays out uh, in Japan, uh, it might be that they can meet more of their own needs than they currently think and the opportunity for countries like Australia to export to them might be less. Unless, of course, it's still cheaper and more attractive to do energy-intensive stuff in Australia, like uh, making hydrogen and uh, extracting iron ore to uh, make steel and uh, exporting the steel to Japan. It, a lot is going to come down to nuances of energy economics and uh, logistics uh, in terms of exactly how these opportunities play out. We're certainly a great place to generate clean electricity. Is that going to be enough given the opportunities that other countries have and the advantages that other countries have? We're going to have to play pretty hard to uh, realise the opportunities that are out there. It does sound like there's a lot of opportunities for Australian businesses in the time ahead, though. That does sound pretty promising. Where there's confusion, there's opportunities, as Paul Hudson's been telling me for, very, for many years. Uh, one last question as we head towards the end. 
are we really going to make green electricity? This is a fundamental question. Is it really going to be clean or is it just going to be, you know, green painted? What do they call that? Uh, greenwashing. Greenwashing. I'll make a quick point here, uh, which is reaching back to the one of the transitions you were talking about, James, the, the original uh, rollout of electricity grids and DC versus AC. Thomas Edison at one point was trying to prove to people that they should definitely not use that nasty DC electricity by persuading legal authorities in the United States to execute some prisoners by electrocuting them with DC to show how much more dangerous DC was than AC. There's a similar level of, of rigour and reliability to some of the arguments that people make about uh, the transitions today. Uh, and when you look at the, the, the cleanliness of electricity generation, yes, there are a lot of resources that go into making a wind turbine or, or, or a wind tower or a solar panel. Uh, but you can't decarbonise an economy in one go. Uh, everything is connected to everything else. And as you clean up each part of the economy, uh, the uh, cleanliness of each other part that it's connected to increases as well. So you definitely need to pay attention to the impacts uh, that, are, that go into uh, cleaner electricity generation. Uh, but you know, progress is progress. 100% in one go is is, is not uh, a realistic standard to judge anything by. Should I go VHS or beta? <laughs> Paul? Yes, uh, look, and I think it'll, it'll come, a lot of that will come back to circular economy thinking as well, right? So um, we're going to have generation and we're going to have batteries, we're going to have them distributed. Uh, they'll all have, have effective lives. Um, and there are quite a number of initiatives now looking at that very issue. Um, about those supply chains of those materials and how we can reuse and perhaps minimise the environmental uh, impact of those. Um, and, uh, and I think you'll, you'll hear a lot more about that as well, and particularly in the battery space as well, um, around uh, the materials that are used in those and, uh, and the like and, and how we may be able to reuse them and how they may be able to even be able to set up business models to be, to be reinstalling and, and to be decommissioning and and all sorts of things. And, and again, they're, they're business opportunities, right? Um, as this goes forward, um, we're going to start seeing, I guess, the first PV systems probably in the next five to 10 years are going to need to be replaced. Um, and and there'll, be, there'll be a whole business model that will need to be a, developed on that, not just on the technology side, um, but how that's done efficiently and effectively, um, minimising both the environmental impact, but also being cost effective. So the future of the electrification of Australia for business people looks bright by the sound of it. Paul Hudson, Tenant Reed, thank you. That was a great conversation. Let's pick it up again next episode. <laughs> <laughs>